Does anybody remember when you could go to the mall and get a t-shirt or a hat custom printed while you waited? Anybody remember that? I mean, do they even make malls anymore? Because uh, I need to go to Radio Shack and get my VCR repaired. So uh, looking forward to doing that this afternoon. So when I was a youth minister, two of our junior high youths, they went down to the mall and they bought matching custom printed hats. And on the back of the first hat were the words uh, emblazoned, too hot to handle. And on the back of the second hat were the words emblazoned, too cold to hold. This was a classic youth ministry moment. As I mentioned, these, these guys were in junior high. Even today, we'll talk about those two guys and their hats, and we'll ask, okay, which one was too hot to hold and which one was too cold to handle? So I was thinking, Josh, Preston, we ought to hit them all after church today. And uh, we ought to get ourselves some sweet custom printed hats. And I know there's three of them. You guys can decide who's too hot to handle and who's too cold to hold. I've, I've come up with another one since there's going to be three of us. It's going to be too cuddly to care right? Sounds about right. Uh, I actually think it's one of my better ideas, so, uh, you know, let's hit them all afterwards and we'll get a Cinnabon. <clears throat> if you think about it, this is exactly how some people view God. They do. Uh, some people believe that God is too hot to handle, a God of wrath, a God of anger. Some people believe that God is a God too cold to hold, that he's distant, far removed from his creation. And others believe that God is a God that is too cuddly to care, that he's some grandfatherly type who just winks and laughs and smirks at sin. And so the issue that we face today is reconciling this view of God. Is he an angry God, a God of wrath, or is he a merciful God, a God of love? And fortunately, Exodus 34, we have the very words of God himself. As God speaks directly to Moses and explains in his own words the kind of God that he is. If you have your Bibles, let's read again from Exodus 34, and I will start in verse 5, which says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is God's word. We've been looking at the attributes of God from this passage in Exodus 34 over the last few weeks. The intent has been to focus on the attributes of God as a way to lead us into Advent or the Christmas season, which begins next week. Today, we're going to close out our series looking at these attributes of God by looking at the last two things that God says about him. First, he is a God who forgives. Secondly, he is a God who will not clear the guilty. 
Let's pray. Father, as we open your word today, we ask you to awaken our heart, expand our mind, and shape our identity. Through Jesus, our Savior, and your Spirit, our teacher, we pray. Amen. Let's look at the first one. A God who forgives. A God who forgives is a merciful God. And, and this attribute of God is, well, it's relatively easy to accept. It is indeed a rich treasure. God is slow to anger, and he is quick to forgive. What a marvelous contrast this is. That God is slow to anger, and he is quick to forgive. Uh, God is slow to anger. He's, he's dial-up, but he's quick to forgive. He's a T1 broadband line, baby. If God is slow to anger, then he's a carrier pigeon. If God is quick to forgive, he's a text message that can go out instantly without regret. If God is slow to anger, he is a dot matrix printer. If he is quick to forgive, he's laser jet. And now we're cooking with gas. This is the comparison the Bible is making for us about God. That he is slow to anger, but he is quick to forgive. And this emphasis is intentional. God is slow to anger, and he is quick to forgive to the fullest extent of his limitless grace. Look again at the first part of verse 7 in your Bibles, which says this about God. That God is this. He keeps steadfast love and faithfulness to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now I want you to notice that there are three words that are being used there. The Bible says God's very own words that he will forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. Now these are not simply three words for the same thing. However, these three words throughout the Old Testament are the most common words which describe our free-willed, fueled rebellion against God. That's how the Bible looks at sin. In those three ways. That sin is not just sin, it's iniquity and it's transgression, all forms. Now, the Hebrew word iniquity... What it does is it carries the idea or the implication of guilt, of guilt. So in the Bible, whenever you read about guilt that comes along with sin, not, not how you feel, that, not that guilt, but the guilt that comes along with what you've done, that something has to be done with that guilt. And so in the Old Testament system, there were sacrifices given. One was specifically a guilt offering. Now, the Hebrew word for transgression is a word that describes sin as an act of rebellion. So on the one hand, you have the guilt of what you did, you're guilty, but then on the other hand, you have sin as rebellion, and that's what transgression means. And then this word sin in the Hebrew, that's used to describe the specific action. For example, the sin of idolatry. Okay. Let's say that there is a law passed which prohibits wearing white after Labor Day. Okay, let's just say that 
you know, that law becomes fixed. It's a law. You cannot wear white after Labor Day. And your immediate reaction upon hearing that this has been voted into law is this. Well, no one's going to tell me what to wear or what not to wear. And so you show up to church on November 1st wearing a three-piece white shirt with a a white suit with a white shirt and a white tie and you're wearing a white belt and white shoes and white socks. Pat Boone, eat your heart out, right? I mean, you're, you're head to toe. You're dressed in and wearing white. Now then, is this iniquity, transgression, or sin? If you answered D, all the above, then that's the correct answer. Let me show you why. You knew it was against the law to wear white after Labor Day. And so rebellion or transgression, it started in your heart when you said, no one's going to tell me what to wear or what not to wear. The specific action of sin was wearing the monochromatic wonder bread attire. And you looked like one of the Sopranos, right? And that's not a good thing, okay? So that was the specific action of sin. The iniquity part of this, the guilt was the result of you breaking the law. You're guilty of transgression because of the specific action that you took. I use this example to show you this. The encompassing nature of sin. It's not just an action. It's rebellion. And it makes you guilty because of your rebellion and your action. But more importantly, I want to show you the all-encompassing nature and richness of God's mercy. The comprehensive nature of his forgiveness. It is so wide. It is so vast that his forgiveness covers every dimension of sin even those dimensions that we may not have even been aware of. This is what you need to know about God. He does not forgive reluctantly. He does not forgive reluctantly. No, God is the kind of God who forgives abundantly. And so, I love these words in the prophet Micah, chapter 7 and verse 18, where God is speaking, and Micah is speaking and says, who is a God like you? Look at what Micah is saying. There is no other God like you, hardening iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He says, Micah says, Who's a God like you? You don't retain anger forever. Not only that, you're a God who delights in steadfast love. You're a God who once again will have compassion on us. You're a God, Micah says, who will tread our iniquities underfoot. You're the kind of God, Micah says, that you will take all of our sins and you will cast them 
into the depths of the sea. Who is like you, O Lord, my God? So God forgives because of our sin against him. But God saves us because of his love for us. The greatest example of this is the verse that Preston shared with us this morning from Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so he has removed our transgressions from us. So the first thing that we learn in this text of Exodus 34 is that God is a God who forgives. The second thing we learn is that God is a God who will not clear the guilty. A God who forgives, then, this is a merciful God. This is a merciful God. A God who will not clear the guilty, this is a just God. And so now we're faced with this dilemma how do we reconcile these two things? How do we reconcile these two things being perfectly true at the same time, that God is a merciful God and that God is a just God? If you have your Bibles again in Exodus 34, would you please look again at that second part of verse 7, which says, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity and transgression and sin of the fathers of the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. In its own particular and peculiar way, this particular attribute of God, oh, it's also a rich treasure. The problem is that there's a misunderstanding here. There's a misunderstanding of what God is actually saying and what he's not saying. And I want to spend just a small amount of time trying to clear up this misunderstanding. But before I do that, I want you to realize something that is, that is critically important. If God really is the creator of the universe, if he really is all-powerful, all-knowing, the all-capable God, why would we expect to understand everything? But more than that, and this is a hard thing, why would we expect to agree with everything he says? I mean, some of what God says is going to be offensive to us. And this is because of our, our sinful nature. At some level, what God says is going to be offensive to us because it offends our sinful nature. And so I just want you to, just to process through that a God that you fully understand and a God that you fully agree with, it's not the real God. It's a God that you've created. It's a God that you've determined. And it's not the real God. It's not the God of the Bible. The immediate question and concern from this phrase that I just read to you is, how can a God of mercy, a, a God of compassion, a God who is slow to anger, a, a God who abounds in faithful, steadfast love, how can this kind of God punish innocent children 
for the sins of their parents. That's really the heart, the struggle of this dilemma. Michael Card, in, in his book, Inexpressible, he is one among many scholars who are writing about this passage, telling us that there is a misunderstanding that needs to be cleared up. And the misunderstanding is due to the way that English translations of the Bible reflect these words of God. So I want to do this quickly. I want to look at three quick things to try to explain this to you this morning. First, I want to show you what it does not say, okay? First thing I want to do, what it does not say. And then I want to talk just briefly about the context of what is being said, because that's the best way to understand what's going on. And then third, I want to show you how this is a very clever, very clever and intriguing comparison and contrast tool. That's what's happening. Okay, the first one, this will be quick. I want you to notice what God does not say, what this text does not say. It does not say that God doesn't forgive the guilty. See? That's not what it's saying. It's not saying a God who doesn't forgive the guilty. We have already seen how God forgives iniquity, how God forgives transgression, and how God forgives sin. So this is not saying that God will not forgive the guilty. God, in his mercy, in his faithful, steadfast love, provides a way for all sin to be forgiven, even yours. He will not, however, forgive those who do not seek forgiveness from him. That's the first thing you have to understand as to what this is saying. This is not teaching us that God will not forgive the guilty. It's saying that God will not clear the guilty. He will not leave those who are guilty unpunished. And how could he? If he truly is a just God. Now the teaching in context. This is not the first time that God has said this. It's not the first time. It's the second time. The first time God makes this declaration is actually in the context of Exodus 20 when he gives the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words. And so it's fascinating to understand the first time that God says these words are right after he says, I am the Lord your God, you shall not have any other God before me, and you shall not make for yourself any carved image of a God. God says those three things, and then he says, because, and this is Exodus 20, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity. He says the exact same phrase that we find in Exodus 34. Okay, so what does this mean? In the Bible, whenever one generation abandoned God for the gods of the nations around them, this had devastating generational consequences. The basic principle is this, that children follow the lead of their parents. In other words, children are not born to be idol worshipers. Children are not born, they were not born to seek out the false gods. They followed the lead of their parents. We see this today, children are not born racists. 
They follow the lead of their parents. But this does not mean that God punishes innocent children for the sins of their parents. Innocent children suffer the consequences of parental disobedience. In a fallen world, we see this truth so painfully illustrated, don't we? How innocent children are punished by the sins of their parents. A drug-addicted pregnant mother punishes her innocent child because of her sin. A father that is addicted to pornography punishes his, his children directly and indirectly because of his sin. Whether it's alcoholism, whether it's pornography, the choices, the decisions that parents make have at times a negative impact on their children. We see this in, 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 in racism, we see this in prejudice, we see this in, in bigotry. Sons do not grow up to be disrespectful to women on their own. They learn that from their parents, from their father. So we see this truth painfully illustrated in our world today. So please hear me when I say that the issue in this text is not if innocent children suffer because of the choices of their parents. That's not what this text is teaching us. The issue in this text is if children are held responsible or accountable for the sins of their parents. See, those are two different issues. Wait, those are two different issues. Two different things. The Bible teaches us that God holds each person accountable for their individual choices. In Deuteronomy 24, God says each person will be punished or even put to death for their own sin. And so children and grandchildren are not punished by God for the sins of their forefathers. Each person receives punishment for their own sin. Which is good news, I guess, right? But see, even the people of the Bible struggled under this misconception. From generation to generation, they labored under the faulty assumption of generational retributive action or punishment. And essentially what that means is this, that I'm responsible for what my dad did, and my dad is responsible for what I did. Good luck, dad. That's the misunderstanding or the misconception that they labored under. Listen, it gets to the point where finally God breaks in through the prophet, our mysterious friend Ezekiel, and God says this in Ezekiel 18. This is one of the most profound sections of scripture in the Bible. Where God breaks in and says, what do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? And this is the proverb, that the fathers have eaten sour grapes 
and the children's teeth are set on edge. Think about the proverb for just a second. See, this proverb had become widespread in, in Judaism and the people of God believing that children were responsible for the sins of their parents. And God comes in and says, what on earth are you doing quoting this proverb? That the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and so the children's teeth are set on edge. Now look at what the next verse says, verse 3. As I live, declares the Lord. <laughs> wow, you have to pay attention in the Bible whenever God says, as I live, as I live, declares the Lord. This proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. You see what God's doing? He's breaking in and saying, no, I've had enough of this. That's enough. Verse 4, he says, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father, as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Okay, this is kind of good news, right? That you're not responsible for the sins of your parents, right? And all those children are like, whew, right? And vice versa. And now all the parents are like, whew, right? Can you imagine if your parents posted the kind of things that you posted on Insta Twitter book? I mean, can you imagine, right? And, and, and for those of you out there who, yeah, your parents do post such things, our heartfelt and sincerest apologies, you know. We could, we'd ban them too if we could. This all comes to a head with my good, dear friend, Rabbi Joseph Teleshkin, who explains it this way. Judaism understands this to mean that God will punish only those who persist in committing the same evils as did their parents and other ancestors. See? So that each person is subject to God's punishment individually when persisting in rebellion. Okay, I know that was a long point, and I'm sorry, but we just had to work through it. I, I wanted to bring chocolate to you, or something, some kind of candy, and give it to you today for sitting through that. So let me just say thank you for your patience. I appreciate it. There's some gospel sweetness coming in just a second. But one more point. This also shows, by comparison, a wonderful contrasting paradox. In this declaration by God, we see two truths greatly at work. That God is a God of mercy and love, but there is a reality of punishment. We see those two things. We're face to face with those. Punishing those who persist in evil, though, this is often used to support this myopic view that God is only a God of wrath. And it's just not true. As I mentioned, both, and Gary, could you go back to that slide? Exodus 20 and Exodus 34, they both say the same thing, but in different orders. See, on the one hand, you have Exodus 20, and it talks about visiting the iniquity, children, all that. And then you said, but showing steadfast. And then in Exodus 34, when God repeats this words, he just changes the order. Keeping steadfast love, but also punishing. Now, now what does this mean? It means that regardless of the order, the two clauses, the two concepts, they have to go together. You have to put them together. You can't quote one or camp in one without looking to the other one as well. You can't pick 
too hot to handle or too cuddly to care. You can't choose one of those. God is a lover and a judge. He's both. God is a lover who loves with fierce and faithful love. But he's also a judge who punishes with faithful and fierce love. See, one without the other makes no sense whatsoever. It just doesn't make any sense. To just say that God is a lover without God as a judge, that's just nonsense. Save that for the Hallmark Channel. To say that God is a judge without God being a lover, that's just meaningless as well. And so this phrase in Exodus 34, 7, if you look at it again, that he shows steadfast love to thousands, oh my goodness, this is a true gem. This really is a rich treasure. In Hebrew, the phrase literally means keeping steadfast love to the thousandth generation. See? That's what that Hebrew word means, and it's used like that in other places. I don't know why they didn't translate it like that here, but that's what that Hebrew word means. So look at this comparison and contrast. God may, because he is just, punish or demand punishment, but to only three to four generations. Some translators even say that just means one household. But you look at God's steadfast love, and he shows it to thousands of generations. See? It's comparison. It's contrast. It's a way to compare and contrast the mercy and forgiveness of God with wrath and punishment. His anger and his punishment are real. There is a day of judgment ahead, but his love and his mercy outlive his anger and punishment. Praise God. I love the way Psalm 30 verse 5 says it, for his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. His anger is but for a moment and his love is for a lifetime. Okay, let's wrap up by asking this question. How can God forgive sin and not clear the guilty? How's that possible? How can this be true at the same time? Let's take an even more pragmatic approach to this dilemma. We are all guilty and we all deserve punishment, right? So how can God forgive and not clear those of us who are guilty? Well, it's through Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus Christ where the merciful God and the just God are reconciled. In Jesus, our guilt is given to him and his innocence is given to us. In Jesus Christ, our punishment is given to him and he takes our punishment and gives us instead his reward. When God says he forgives, the Hebrew word forgive is so powerful and so meaningful. It's a word that actually means to carry, to carry, to, to lift, to bear, to lift up. See, so how does God forgive when he by no means will clear the guilty? The answer is through Jesus and the cross. That's how he does it. Jesus becomes the means by which God removes the guilt and forgives sinners. On the cross, Jesus is lifted up 
so that our sins may be taken away. Jesus carried his own cross so that he could carry our sins far away. Jesus bears our sin on the cross so that we might bear the name of the Lord, the Lord, a God who forgives. The weight of sin, the load we carried, we no longer carry because Jesus Christ carries it for us. Martin Luther said it this way, simul justice et peccador. That's for you, Josh. Which means a sinner and justified at the same time. Praise God. Praise God for his just nature and praise God for his mercy. In one sense, we are sinners. But in another sense, because of Jesus Christ, we are justified. Those two things are true at the same time. And this is the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the gospel that we receive the righteousness of Jesus and Jesus receives our unrighteousness. When I was a youth minister, one of our most favorite songs to sing was this, he paid a debt that he did not owe. I owed a debt that he could not pay. I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. Let's pray. Father, oh Father, may your mercy and your steadfast love be so real that others will say yes to you. May our lives that we lead because of the salvation that we've received, may it draw others to say yes to you. So we say in this time of thanksgiving, Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for loving us and choosing to save us even when we were your enemies. May we find joy and delight in our yes to you. Through Jesus we pray, amen.